came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1980. Hey, welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now. My name is Will. And on this episode, we'll be speaking with the former attorney for Public Enemy, Professor K.J. Green, about how sampling and the law shaped hip-hop in the 1980s and may have killed it shortly after that decade. If you enjoy our chat, please follow our show on the audio platform you're listening to right now, because each week we celebrate another aspect of 1980s media and its influence today. Our guest today is a graduate of the Yale Law School and a veteran of the United States Marines. He has represented iconic clients such as director Spike Lee's 40 Acres and a Mule, Harry Connick Jr., Bobby Brown, and Public Enemy. In 2005, our guest became the first law professor voted a top 10 attorney by the San Diego Bar in the field of intellectual property. And in 2020, he was selected by the National Bar Association as a top 100 attorney in the state of California. Currently, our guest is the John J. Schumacher Chair Professor at Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles, where he teaches copyright law, entertainment law, and music law. To learn more about our guest, please visit Kevin J. Green, with an E at the end, dot com. Please welcome to the show, Professor K.J. Green. Great to meet you. I am so excited to talk to you. As I've been mentioning to you uh, just before we started recording, I'm a huge fan of hip hop. I love, and I love not only the music, I really find it fascinating that what happened sort of on that cusp of that music sort of coming to be and the technology and then the, the legal issues that sort of came into play as a result of that. So having you here is uh, a boon. But we couldn't do it without you. Well, thank you. Let me ask you a, a most important question first. Are you a fan of hip hop? Absolutely. Um, I went to law school uh, in the, uh, you know, late, late 80s. <laughs> and I loved hip hop. Hip hop got me through law school. I listened to Public Enemy all the time. Oh, okay. Eric B. and Rakim. Uh, yes. What was that? Uh, Paid in Full. Of course. A whole bunch of them. UTFO, all of that. Yes, Absolutely. Then later on, I had the chance to represent Chuck T. So that was one of the greatest, you know, parts of my uh, my legal career, my early legal career anyway. No kidding. That's fantastic. Yes. Gosh, yes. I can't imagine. OK, so, yeah. So so your your love of hip hop even predates your your interest in law, your legal profession. That's it, it sure does. So, you know, sampling uh, or the sort of the art of using another's music to create uh, hip hop, you know, is, is as old as hip hop itself. Sugar Hill Gang's song, you know, which is the, the first to hit the top 40, or the second uh, hip hop track recorded, rather, is rapping over Good Times by Cheek. So, you know, it's been around for yes, a long time. Yes, and they caught, they caught an infringement claim over that. Okay. Yeah. That's my curiosity. Yeah. So that song came out in 1979. Yes. Did, at that point already, were, were, uh, there was already a lawsuit filed back, back then or early on? There was. Um, the uh, the Sheik people, I think Nile Rogers, right, right, was the leader of that group. And I think he owns most of the rights to that music. Yeah, he definitely, I don't know if he actually filed a lawsuit, but he definitely sent a, a C&D, a cease and desist hmm. letter, and they ended up settling the claim right. for good times. But right off the bat, not only that, in the, uh, the Rapper's Delight, if you listen to the lyrics, it's, it talks about... Um, uh, Big Hank and 
Big Bang Hank, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that was somebody else's lyrics actually that were used. Yeah. And um, the guy claims to this day, he was never compensated for that. So oh. right from the bat, there were a lot of legal issues with hip hop, right? Right with, with Rapper's Delight, right, right out of the gate. Yeah. Is filled with uh, various copyright <laughs> claims or uh, potential claims. That's interesting. Then thinking ahead, and I don't want to jump ahead necessarily, but that uh, we wouldn't have had court cases carving out or clarifying copyright law earlier in the '80s. That it would take, it seems like, so long when uh, you know folks were already uh, filing infringement claims already. I, I'm surprised. I didn't know about that that suit. They were, and of course, you know, people know about, and you probably know about the uh, the Grand Upright case. Sure. Uh, uh, the Warner Brothers case, and yeah. that was uh, Bismarck Key. Right. And they, that was a decision, of course, that just was a, a cut and dry decision that any sampling is is illegal. Right. Old Judge Duffy there in the Southern District of New York right. uh, infam- infamously said, thou shalt not steal, <laughs> right? And I always joke, and I've written about this, that if my law students do this, or if you had written that in your exam as a law student, right. if you cite the Bible, you're automatically going to fail the exam, right? Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your only authority yeah. as a Bible, that's it now. <laughs> Shaking ground, yeah. And yeah, of course, yeah. of course, the case you're referring to, just so folks know, so Bismarcky sampled uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again, naturally, you know, a, a well-known song, and he had it. He didn't have the rights to doing that, and. It's clear as day, unlike some of the other cases we could talk about. It's really easy to hear that song in there. And yeah, and that case was in 91. He did attempt to get a license, but unfortunately the song came out before they got through that process. Oh, okay. That's different than what I recall. Yeah. 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 To me, the Bismarck Key case is about a guy, early hip hop, which was very controversial. Uh, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was scandalous, but a lot of it was considered so. And Gilbert O'Sullivan was a one hit wonder. That's his only song right. <laughs> that, that anybody knows about. And so I think the lesson from that is if you go after, if you uh, remix a song that's a one hit wonder, you're probably going to get sued for it. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> need that income. Yeah, of course. Well, they didn't want to be associated with hip hop either. Mm. Right. You had two live crew in those days. You had all these groups. And so there was this sure. notion, at least among these, these mainstream artists like Gilbert O'Sullivan, that we simply don't want to be associated with this idiom. Mm. I think that changed when, uh, when Aerosmith, uh, right. uh, remixed, uh, walk this way with, with, uh, run DMC and uh, they got the sense that mm, we can make a lot of money doing this. Right. <laughs> so hmm, I don't know if we should even, should it be stated? Maybe we shouldn't assume that folks, whether folks understand that the fact that I guess broadly stated copyright law exists to protect the original creator of a work. Uh, I'm sure you could articulate this much better than I could. I guess I'm trying to say it in, an, in a non uh, blacks law way, but um, um, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of hard. Uh, well, I am black. <laughs> Okay, folks, just so everybody knows, I'm talking about a legal authority, a well-known book that, okay, um, that, so the original creator of a work has certain rights just by nature of copyright law. And all you have to do to get a copyright is create something, put it in, as they say, tangible form. So you've got a record, you've got a book, et cetera, and so on. And generally the idea is if someone else uses that, they may have infringed on that right. Is that... That's I don't know, that's great. Enough. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And when you, so when we're talking about Bismarck, where that's you know we know he used it. He even tried to get it. So the argument that he didn't use it is, goes out the window because he tried to get the rights for it. it. Was in the process, as you say. That's right. Um, he didn't go with parody either. I think right. he should have went with parody. Yes. He didn't. He didn't go that direction. Well, yes. You know what? So we, I, or his lawyers. Didn't. So maybe maybe we should distinguish then the the, the Campbell uh, Acuff Acuff Rose. Yeah. A case. 
because, yes. uh, as you mentioned, talking about, speaking of two live crew, they recreated essentially uh, Ray, Roy Orbison's song "Pretty Wo- Oh Pretty Woman," and their con- the content of their lyrics are very different than uh, Roy Orbison's. And it, you know, it's done uh, in sort of tongue in cheek, I suppose. Yeah, instead of uh, "Pretty Woman" is "Big Hairy Woman," <laughs> but they, uh, <laughs> they those are their mildest lyrics ever. Right. Yes, <laughs> by the way, yeah. I always, but I have to teach this in class, and you were in copyright class, and I always tell the students, "Look, I can't even say these titles of two lives. I can't yeah. even say the title." Yeah, in class. And I think, and I think, wasn't that song on "As Clean as We Want to Be"? It wasn't even on the. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yes. What if it had been right. on the other version? Yeah, no. Um, so how do we, why is it different? Why is the outcome different? Here we can hear a Roy Orbison song. We know it's definitely Roy Orbison, just like the Bismarcky case where we could tell it was Gilbert O'Sullivan. Why does uh, Luke Campbell ex- uh, is able to survive this uh, infringement? Case? I mean, that's a great question. So fair use is a defense to copyright infringement. And part of fair use is whether you are transforming the work. Yep. So it's transformative fair use. Are you taking an original work work and transforming it, particularly in a way that comments on it, or in the case of parody, pokes fun at the original? Right. And the Supreme Court thought in the two live crew case, which is the Acuff uh, Rose case, B. Campbell, that it was fair use. And that's still the leading case on fair use. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's still the gold standard, that case from 95, I want to say. Now, you might recall, of course, Bismarck Key was a little bit earlier. Right. So his case came first. He didn't have that case as authority. And maybe his lawyers didn't want to plead it. I don't know why they didn't. Because arguably the uh, the Bismarck Key song, uh, um, which interpolates alone again, naturally, right. he changes the song. And instead of this maudlin song about a man who lost his father or his, I think his mother who passed away and, so, right. and he's always alone, he's now in Harlem and his feet are hurting in the, in the Bismarck Key song. <laughs> so I think I would, as a lawyer, I certainly would have made the argument that, hey, this is a parody of the original song. And the Supreme Court clearly thought that uh, Two Live Crew was making fun of the Gilbert O'Gullivan O'Sullivan song alone again, naturally. Mm. And they thought it was transformative. They changed it into something uh, else in a way, commenting on the song. Right. Uh, I don't know what the comment is after all these years. So do you, (laughs) what is the comment that two live crew made about pretty woman? Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I still don't get what the comment is. No, yeah. I'm trying to remember what they even said because I read it just recently in preparation of this. Yeah. For this this happened recently too with a killer, more recently with a ghost face killer from the uh, Wu-Tang Clan. You probably know about that one as well. No, I don't. And the song was uh, what a wonderful world, which is sung by Louis Armstrong, but not written by him. He's Louis Armstrong owns the song in terms of artistic, but he didn't write it and he used that song in um, a song called the forest mm. and in the forest instead of it's it, he they used uh, the intro to what a wonderful world i say to myself and then mm. they put it in the you know in the inner city in the ghetto and I the see. court against it mm, sorry that's that's transformative fair use he's they're they're commenting on the original song and they're putting it in a different context which just goes to show you that no one can tell you what fair use is will right yeah, I, I, I do. I do recall that all similarly that the, the Drake case versus uh, or Jimmy Smith versus uh, oh the pound cake case. Right. Yeah, 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 I, I yeah. was shocked at the outcome of that. Thinking about these other, I'm more I'm more aligned with that. Will yeah, because he changed it in the original pound cake rap, uh, Jimmy's rap, whatever it is right. that he did. He was basically saying, "Look, jazz is timeless. It basically beats all other music, and right. it always will." And Drake was commenting, mm, maybe it doesn't, right? That some of these other newer forms of music also should reach that latest status. So I'm more aligned mm-hmm. actually with the pound cake case than I am with, for example, uh, the two live, cra- 
two life crew case or even the, the, uh, the, um, Bismarck key case. And it almost seems that, um, in order to, you know, the loophole that were created, at least in current law with copyright is I get a song and I, I commented ironically, you know, if, as long as my content of my song is some kind of, <laughs> I guess is a comment rather, if my lyrics are a comment on the sample or I'm safe, which I don't know, it seems like a low bar. Well, I don't, in the, in the bar, in terms of the legal bar, yes. not so much, not so fast. I don't know any lawyer and I've been on many panels and I've always asked his lawyers these questions. If, you know, fair use is an issue. Yeah. And I say, do you ever tell your client, go ahead and do it, go ahead right. and sample, go ahead and <laughs> use that piece of art right. because you'll, it's fair use. Right. And no lawyer ever in all these years has ever said, yep, I routinely tell my clients it's fair use, go ahead. Because the truth is the only way we know if something is fair use is when a federal judge says it's fair use. Right. Right. And you have to get sued basically to find out. <laughs> right. And as you know, our profession is very, very risk averse. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> Maybe more so than anything, except perhaps accounting. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about uh, how um, some of these cases escaped infringement or some of these defendants escaped infringement because the work was transformative enough. It's, yes. And no one knows what that really means. Who knows well, what that means? Right? I guess that's what it's I want to ask. My judge. I think one of the fascinating things about copyright is the compulsory license. This idea, and folks may wonder, how is it that we can have covers of, like all these covers I see on iTunes now, tons of them. And some of them are covers of songs that are hard to get or not digitally available. And what I recall, you know, from law school was that what my professor taught us was the more similar a song is to the song it's covering, the less likely you would be. Uh, I guess, considered infringing it. In other words, what I recall him saying was that if you're intended to do a cover under the compulsory license, if it's too transformative, it may not be, you may not be safe under that. Now, maybe you're safe under That's exactly right. Exactly right. If it does, if it changes the song too much, it's not a cover. Yeah. It's a derivative work. Right. Right. Okay. And it's an adaptation, derivative work, same thing. And you need a license for that. Or if you don't get a license and you don't have a fair use defense or some other defense, then you've infringed the copyright. Um, and it seems to me that is a very underexplored uh, area, what you're talking about. Mm. When do you cross that line right. from a compulsory license, which I think the Copyright Act says you can faithfully, you must try to faithfully recreate right. the song and you have some <laughs> latitude around the arrangement, but no one really knows. There's, and there's very legal, little legal authority on that, even law review articles on, mm. okay, when does it cross that line? Because as you said, the compulsory license said, hey, once you release your song on a record, once Cat does it, once Will does it, once I did, anybody else can remake that song. Yeah. Often the hmm. uh, original uh, uh, creator doesn't like it. Dolly Parton, right? right. <laughs> Who did I Will Always Love You. A lot of people don't know that. Right. Mm -hmm. They think of Whitney Houston when they think of that song. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and some of the early uh, African-American artists were really bitter about being covered. And sure. Pat Boone or, you know, some other artists becoming much more famous than Little Richard, who, who wrote Tutti Frutti. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Elvis yeah. Presley with uh, Hound Dog. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, most of the time, I mean, think about how much money Dolly Parton must have made from Whitney Houston's rendition of I Will Always Love You. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because she doesn't get any royalties on that composition. The Whitney, well, she's passed away. Sure. Dolly sure. gets all the right. money. Right. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Gosh. <laughs> Yeah, and I, know, I don't yeah, think I, she needs it, but yeah, yeah she's doing fine. She's doing fine. You know, so this, oh man, this is really, so I guess what I was going to, I was trying to think what I was going to say early on, 
Early on in copyright, you know, before we, some of the cases we're talking about, as you mentioned, they happened in the early 90s, and we've had even more recent cases that just caused even more confusion. But early in the 1980s, when, when uh, you know, DJs, music producers, MCs were trying to create music in their kitchen, on their kitchen tables, in their bedrooms, etc., either they didn't care about copyright, or I would say early on, because I, I was a aspiring music producer myself and DJ early on, but was... In the early 80s, there were these rumors. If you just take less than two seconds or four seconds or just one measure or four notes, there was all these different variations. You're safe. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't even know that we knew that fair use was a defense. We just thought they can't even come after us. Yes, they were very wrong about that. <laughs> <Okay>. Very wrong. <laughs> but the law in this area is a mess, as you probably know. Yeah. And uh, artists believe all sorts of things. Artists believe that if they, um, uh, Sign a, you put something in the mail and send it that that's as good as having a copyright registration. <laughs> right. I, I believe that too. I did that in fact. <laughs> it's not, that does not oh, no. constitute proof that you created that work. Mm. And right now, the way things are, the Supreme Court has never weighed in on this. Um, they did, they waited in, in the, um, the pretty woman case, but it wasn't that the issue wasn't the legality of sampling. It was fair use mm. in the ninth circuit here in the ninth circuit. We had the, um, the Madonna case, you're probably familiar with that one. The song was Vogue. Yes. And this this group called Sal Soul Orchestra sued in 2013, I want to say, was when the suit began, saying that the very distinctive horn that's um, that's interspit all throughout Madonna's number one song, Vogue, right. was their horn from a record they had done back in the, I want to say in the 70s, they the Sal Soul Orchestra. They were 70s disco kind of outfit. Right. And um, here in the Ninth Circuit, the court said, sorry, that what what Madonna took for Vogue was so little, so trifling, we call it de minimis in copyright law, that it doesn't constitute copyright infringement. So that's what we have here in the Ninth Circuit. In the Sixth Circuit, we have the Bridgeport case, uh, which is uh, the Thousand Miles and Running case. And that involved a sample of a George Clinton record, Get Off Your Ass and Jam. (laughs) (laughs) In that case, the Sixth Circuit said any amount of sampling and taking anything from anybody's record, anybody's sound recording, equals copyright infringement. That's still the rule in the Sixth Circuit. In the Second Circuit, we have Judge Duffy saying, thou shalt not steal. And so you could imagine that there's a there's a bit of confusion and copyright. Most artists are going to be doing it nationally. Right. So they can't just rely on what's happening in New York and California in uh, Tennessee for the Sixth Circuit. So it's a big old mess. And lawyers mainly are going to say get a license because we're very mm-hmm. risk averse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Just get a license, which is the Sixth Circuit rule. Right. Yeah. And I know I remember it was in the uh, Southern District, Sarah Gama, India Limited. V. Mosley, same idea. This is it ignored Bridgeport and applied substantial similarity de minimis. Well, there you go. There you go. So that's that. If if you think that there should be more sampling, you probably like the rule from the um yeah, the Madonna case, the Vogue yeah. case, the Vogue sampling case, because it seems to give people more latitude. Practically, I don't know if it changes anything, at least from the lawyer's perspective. Yeah. Um, to say, mm, yeah, that's so little that you can use it. I don't think any lawyer wants to put their insurance on the line on that call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know how much practically it changes things, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for that to happen. And Madonna, of course, is so well financed. And I am contrarian. I think that even though, and you could play the Vogue song so people could hear it, even though that there's just a two second horn tweet in yeah. Vogue, why did they pick that one? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why didn't they just hire a musician to do it, do a horn, right. you know, toot? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I feel like that artist should be compensated something for that. Right. You know, it's interesting. I made millions off of Vogue. It's interesting that you say that because, and I may have read this in something that you've written, but that the idea of sampling, certainly going back to the 1980s and early hip hop was a way of not only, the fact that we had this technology was not only a way of democratizing music production, because now you had folks who, they just needed a sampler and a turn, you know, a source of samples or turntable and records. They didn't need to have a band. They didn't need to have a singer. They didn't have anything. They just needed that, maybe a drum machine, et cetera. That's right. Two turntables and a mic. <laughs> right. And the, and the thing about it was they were most often sampling from music that they revered. So, of course, James Brown is, you know, the, like, the most sampled recording artist of all time. George Clinton. George Clinton, right, is probably number two. Um, that, uh, what was my point going to be? Oh, oh, about the Vogue thing. So it seems like even if they could recreate, somehow they got, you know, a drummer that sounds like uh, Clyde Stubblefield to recreate Funky Drummer. Uh, I, there's something about being able to play pay uh, homage to the thing you love that brought you came up with that you just want to, I don't know, you want to make that, you know, connection, right? I, I think I that's can what see you're a very, you're a very romantic guy. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't practice law. This is why I don't practice law. <laughs> uh, you're right. In the beginning, it was like that and they were paying homage, but then this thing called hip hop, which started, well, most people agree in the South Bronx, although the people over at the ah. Queensbridge projects <laughs> over in Queens, they had something to say right. about that. Uh, it became this, you know, this trillion dollar business almost, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cash changes everything, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's funny. You know, you bring up the the, the rivalry between uh, Marley Marl's people, MC Shan and, and Boogie Down Productions. These, these uh, another great thing about the 80s, going back and forth. I heard a story, I think it's true, because I think I heard Marley Marl tell the story, was it? Or maybe it was KRS-One. That, you know, so you had MC Shan produce this record, The, Brid- uh, the Bridge, saying, uh, seeming to allude to hip-hop creating, starting out in Queensbridge. And so uh, KRS-One writes uh, South Bronx to say uh, no. And <laughs> supposedly- yes, and I think KRS has the argument. Right, yes. You know? yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think MC Shan ultimately said, that's not what I meant. But right, KRS-One, right. supposedly he was up at, oh, I was like, I uh, can't remember who it was. He went to see- um, uh, uh, Mr. Magic, I think. And Mr. Magic didn't want to play his record. And <laughs> it said, you know, we don't want to play this new record. So the tapes, supposedly the masters that Aunt Marley Merle had, all his samples on, all his James Brown slices of, in, you know, uh, of different uh, drums and snares and honey drippers, impeach the president, whatever he used for the bridge, was there. And Karis won and I think Scott LaRock or somebody, they took it. And they used that actual, the actual samples that Marley Mall used to create the bridge to create South Bronx. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't know about that one. So, <laughs> well, today that would have been a massive lawsuit. You can do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. People sue for far less than that now. Yeah. There's more litigation, I think, in hip hop hmm. than in any other area. Wow. It's a shame, too, right? It's a hard, I guess, ultimately, I guess that's the question I want to ask you is, uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, you said you were a fan of Public Enemy. I mean, there's probably no more iconic album, whether you know it or not, than it takes a nation of millions to hold us back as far as the transformative use, as you say, of, of samples to create a sound before that had never been heard and has never been heard since. But it sounds like, what we, you know, based on what you're saying is, we couldn't that get that out. Right. Yeah. Right. They did, they did to hip hop what Spectre did to rock music, sure. right? That yeah. wall of sound, you yeah. know? Yeah, well, it is it is unfortunate that, that that things have turned out that way. 
the law has not changed, unfortunately, very much. Is this hodgepodge of laws that we just talked about? Different circuits applying different standards to determine whether there's infringement. Um, some people say there ought to be a compulsory license for samples, oh, be but amazing. I guess there's resistance in some quarters to that because I think even now some people don't want to be sampled. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Stacy uh, Tracy Chapman is a great example of that. You probably know about that one. Mm-hmm. Right. This mm-hmm. is just last year when mm-hmm. Nicki Minaj wanted to sample. Uh, uh, what is the song? Not Fast Car, but the other uh, one. Um, Baby, Can I Hold You Tonight? Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Baby, Can I Hold You Tonight? And they settled that. Um, they paid out. I think it's Sony is the label. They paid Nicki Minaj, uh, Tracy Chapman, $450,000 on that one. Yeah. She just doesn't want to be sampled. Yeah. Prince was the same. Prince was very yeah. adamant. You cannot sample me. So we, if we get a compulsory license, I think it would make th- life a lot easier and say, okay, great, you can use this. You don't even have to ask. That's what compulsory means. But you've got to pay, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever you're, mm-hmm. you're sampling. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. However, what about those artists who want autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. And say, we don't wish to be sampled. You know, it's odd though, because like you're saying, you could have a parody of a Prince song. And, you know, there would be little to do for your prince's estate probably couldn't stop it. <laughs> yes. He was so litigious, Prince. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he sued a lady or sued, he sued, you know, the Internet service provider because somebody played Let's Go Crazy. And there was a lady who was showing her baby dance, you know, on oh. YouTube. <laughs> he went after them for that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, speaking of folks who don't like sampling, uh, I know you quoted in, in, in your paper that uh, James Brown wasn't a fan of sampling. He said everything's on the record is mine. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> no, there's irony on top of irony with that. Because oh, as yeah. you know, Stubblefield created those drum beats and he was not, he did not own the copyrights in those. Right. And also um, his most famous, one of his more famous songs, he has so many famous songs, James Brown. Yep. It's, it's a man's man's world. Sure. Was almost 100% written by a woman who was mm. uncredited. <laughs> I didn't oh. know that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Which, yeah. again, shows you it is a man's world, right? Yeah. A woman didn't get the credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you point out, like, the, the, the copyright license where we're talking about it, it, you know, protects the recording. So we're talking about the actual recording, and it, there's some rights that run to the person who wrote the song, but the performers don't have any protection. So even though uh, Clyde has this amazing, distinct style, there's no protection for that. Absolutely. I've written about this and I'm railing. And, you know, I, I think I've got, I've, it's taken 20 years, but I think I actually have the ear of the copyright office now. Oh. It's taken a long time. It's taken 20 years. All these things that you're talking about that I've been saying for that long. Yeah. With the way we treat performers in the United States is abysmal. It's mm-hmm. a scandal, really. Mm-hmm. And I'm particularly concerned about the people you like from the 70s and the 80s, because I perused those uh, 1970s and 80s contracts. I know that those performers in the original contracts yeah. often got paid little or nothing. Mm. Now, all that music is being reimagined through, you know, hip hop and through digital streaming. Right. Streaming. Streaming is a, is a gold mine right now. It's a musical gold mine is revitalize all that old music. And the people who originally did it literally oftentimes got nothing. They got zero. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very concerned about that now. And I've been, I've been railing about this. As you can see, I'm kind of rail about that. <laughs> yes, go, yeah, please. All these catalogs are being acquired, including the hip hop. Yes. And the hip hop space, the um, death row catalog was acquired for $350 million right. by Hasbro. Hasbro! Oh. Before that, That's the company that makes Peppa Pig on those rights. <laughs> <laughs> they sold yeah. to Hasbro for $350 million. Oh. And my thing is, okay, I'm not worried about the, the big artist right on, on death row. I think, you know, Ice Cube will be okay. Yeah. 
But what about all the, the, the smaller artists who, who make those records? Like you're saying, like, what did they get? Often it was zero. And now somebody else is literally making millions, approaching billions of dollars on this music. It's very, very disturbing to me. Right. Yeah. And, and mm. yeah. And then I, I recall reading about, you know, you've got this now also this sort of industry of uh, copyright trolls. I don't know, think that Hasbro would necessarily fall into that category, but these companies that snatch up these rights just for the, you know, being able to get the licensing <laughs> or wait for someone to sample it. So You're going to get me in trouble, Will. Oh. You're going to get me a lot of trouble. <laughs> right. So let me be careful. Let me phrase okay. this carefully. Yes. Okay. So there is a lawsuit is, is Bridgeport, right? Right. Bridgeport was in the, um, the case involving a uh, thousand miles and running in the George Clinton sample of get off your ass and jam. Right. Well, who is Bridgeport? Some, uh, oh. here it is some, <laughs> some allege, <Yes. laughs> including professor Tim Wu at Columbia law school, that Bridgeport music company is a copyright troll. Mm. And what do we mean by that? It's a company that acquires rights to copyrights because you can trade copyrights as you learn in, in your class, like baseball cards, right? You can assign them, sure. you can slice them up, you can dice them. They own the George Clinton catalog, most of it. Uh, they're trying to settle that, hopefully they will one day. They own a lot of that great old um, soul music, uh, the Bar K's, and mm. I'm trying to think oh, of some of the, uh, the Ohio players, right? right? Oh, yep. Which again, with the magic of streaming and sampling and the like is, is, is gold, right? the Ohio mm-hmm. players to be able to sample that stuff. Oh, and they, they don't. So the troll, the, the notion of a troll is they haven't created anything. They didn't make that music and all they make their living by is by monetizing it, by finding people on the internet online who are using that music and then zapping them with cease and desist letters mm-hmm. and demanding lots of money. That's what the troll is. They're under the bridge. Now, again, <laughs> notice I said that they're alleged to have done that. I yes, want to be clear of course. about that. Yes, we don't know. We know. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes. The compulsory license, that would be great. You know, not only because we get be able to uh, allow for more innovation and allow for, you know, artists to now create new music. But again, that connection that it, it would literally be connected or have that connective tissue to the its predecessors, you know, and almost creating a oral A-U-R-A-L history of sorts. You know, there's so many songs that I learned about because of hip hop, you know, because of a sample, because I wanted to find out where did that beat come from? Oh, it's the Barquet's Holy Ghost. You know, now I'm a fan of theirs, you know, or, you know. Jimmy Castor bunch. Now I've got, you know, an album of theirs. It's, it's, it's a shame. It is. And maybe, maybe there could be some sort of opt out system for the princes mm. of the world yeah. and the Tracy Chappers <laughs> of the world who mm-hmm. simply, mm-hmm. they don't want anybody to touch their music and using compulsory means it's going to be blanket, right? It means everybody yeah. has to agree to it, but maybe yeah. there could be a carve out, right? We need that. We need that certainly with um, our ASCAP and BMIs, our performance uh, rights societies, yeah. Because they, you give a blanket license and this last political cycle, every political cycle over the last number of years, a lot of artists are like, hmm, I don't want that person. And I'm not going to say mm-hmm. you can probably imagine who that person <laughs> is. I don't want that person playing my music his, mm-hmm. at his campaign rallies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the blanket license says if that person has acquired that right, the public performance license, they can play that music in that hall, in that venue, et cetera. The only one who I saw was able to get out of it. The Rolling Stones, for example, one group. They didn't want Mr. They didn't want Mr. Mm-hmm. playing their music, and a lot of other people too. Um, um, but the one person who was able to get out of it was Rihanna. So I think Rihanna is the most powerful woman in the world. 
<laughs> I, yeah, even before that. She, yes. told, she, told, she told BMI, she told BMI, if you let this individual keep playing my music at his rallies, then I'm going to drop you. I'm going to, I'm going to, wow. you know, exit BMI. And somehow, mm. like magic, BMI was able to say, sorry, you can't use this one artist's music at your mm. rallies. Mm. That's amazing. So you got to love Rihanna. Don't yes. mess with her. Mm. Yeah. I'm bummed. I'm really bummed. I want another, you know, there's so many great, I don't know, so much great innovation. Look, our, our contention here is that the 1980s as a decade, and you've got, you know, other eras that may have had something better for some reason, but those 10 years, you had such a birth of innovation. The golden era. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. You, you said, Carl, <laughs> you want to share what hey, from. Yeah. I, got a, I can't say it too loud because uh, being the AG is I have a 20 year old, 21 year old, yeah. and you know, they're contentious. So if I say this, he'll <laughs> yeah. I never said that, but even he has admitted, yes. even yeah. he has admitted that those old school rappers, most of these okay. rappers, they have nothing on those guys. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> Raise your kids. Right. People. That's what we're saying. And, and he listens and he listens to that stuff. Oh, good. Yeah. Awesome. And jazz and a lot of other stuff too. You know, yeah. professor, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, I think, I don't know. I'm kind of, kind of bummed out. I'm going to go listen to some 80s hip hop. That'll cheer me up. But I'm kind of bummed out <laughs> that we may not, you know, hear the kind of hip hop and we don't hear the kind of hip hop that we did in the 1980s. But we'll always have that, I suppose. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, if you enjoyed this conversation, please follow our show on the platform you're listening to right now for more content just like it. And we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. Oh,